0: You're listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Hi, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Here we are, getting deeper into the summer, from coast to coast to coast. And we have a great show for you. But I'm going to start with a long rant on competence. I expect my political leaders to be competent. Don't you? Competence is one of the critical expectations in anything. You hope when you hire a plumber, the plumber is competent to fix your pipes. A roofer, you want the roofer to be competent. Yeah, I did the job. I replaced the shingles. What about the guy fixing your chimney? Yeah, I did a great job. You look at it. Seems competent. They take some photos of it. They show you. Very competent. Holds up. That holds up. Now you can use your fireplace. Good job. You want the teachers teaching you and your kids to be competent. You want the bus driver driving the bus to be competent so you don't die in a bus crash. Competence is the base expectations. And when things happen, you want them to be competent and trained to deal with the situation. Hi, Doc. Are you competent? Yes. Well, I've got a new problem. Well, we can deal with that. The system has the competence to cope with new things. But right now, there is a crisis of competence, and that leads to a crisis of trust. If You don't think your leaders are competent. You don't trust your leaders. If You don't trust your leaders. Then you turn to alternative sources, and you begin the big breakdown. And here's why there's a crisis of competence and this is the this is going to face the liberal government now i know they've got this confidence and supply motion with the ndp but it's a confidence and supply motion what they need is a competence motion deal but they don't have that and they're going to suffer inflation you know this you've heard it on probably every radio station all day the numbers are at the highest point since 1983, 7.7%. It's not like you didn't know this. It's not like you didn't know they were at a 40-year high. It's not like you didn't know this because gas prices rose 12% in the month of May alone. It's not that you didn't know they were up 48% from this time last year. It's not that you didn't know that food prices were up 9.7% over last year. It's not that you didn't know... That certain foods are up 30%. It's not that you didn't know that housing and rent costs are up. You know all this. Everything's going up. Now, why is it going up? Well, there's a million reasons. Supply chain disruptions post-COVID. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All that's true. But the government's job is to look as if they are competent to do something about it. They can't, as Christian Freeland did last week, say, we've got a brand new affordability plan. And it's the plan I announced in April before these numbers were this bad. But it's new because the money that is coming is new. More money isn't the answer. you got to give people a break now. Inflation is killing people. And, it, and if it's killing people's wallets, it's going to kill your political support. So if you're a politician, you better be very wary. You've got to do something. I know there floated the idea of a, a gas tax break. And I know the Conservatives have pitched it so the Liberals won't swing at it, but they should. It's immediate, it's instant, and it helps. I spoke to the chief economist of Scotiabank, and I said, is, the, is that a material impact? He said, yeah, for sure. You, you take 10, 11 cents off the price of gas, it, it matters. It matters. Now, people will say, oh, but it's not structural and the gas companies are just going to crank it up. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But it's an instant relief and it shows that you are ready to act. Not, well, you know, don't worry, the plan we had is working. If you're losing the game after two and a half periods and you're coming to the end of the third, you've got to change the bloody plan. And the inflation plan that the liberals thought they had when they trusted the Bank of Canada governor who said it was transitory, I asked the Bank of Canada governor, remember, four months ago, that word doesn't seem to be a very smart word anymore, does it, sir? That word does not accurately, it's a geologic word, it's transitory in the sense that everything will pass, we're all going to die, but it doesn't help the average person, and even he admitted transitory is a crappy word. Well, because inflation's, it's not transitory, it looks permanent or semi-permanent and it's getting worse. And they do not have a competent plan. And then yesterday their competence was tested again. When? And this is this is and we're going to cover this today. The and I'm going to credit the Halifax examiner for breaking this story. Halifax examiner, great. They they first the Halifax examiner were the first paper to read the mass casualty commission report. The public this is the mass casualty commission report was is a study into what happened in Nova Scotia and I just want to remind you in April 2020 when there was that horrible murderer who disguised himself as an RCMP officer even with a car and went on a 2-day shooting spree that left 22 people dead we've spoken to many of the relatives A police officer killed. A 17-year-old teenager killed. A primary school teacher killed. A pregnant woman killed. Canada's worst mass shooting. And the Mass Casualty Commission yesterday released something damning, something unbelievable. Something that, if true, would lead to the resignation of the commission of the RCMP and the, and the Minister of Public Safety, if it's true. Because, and I am and read it to you. Handwritten notes. From Superintendent D. Campbell, who was one of the key investigators, who said a week after the shooting spree, he was on in the meeting with the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky. And he said that Lucky, and these are from his handwritten notes. And he said, Brenda Lucky felt that the RCMP in Nova Scotia had disobeyed her instructions to include specific information on the firearm used by the perpetrator. And in his handwritten notes, the Superintendent Campbell indicated he told the Nova Scotia RCMP Strategic Comms Unit not to release the information about the perpetrator's firearm because he said it would, quote, jeopardize the ongoing investigation into the perp's access to firearms. But according to Superintendent Campbell's notes, I'm reading from the Mass Casualty Commission here, folks, Commissioner Lucky stated she had promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. What? Superintendent Campbell has notes that say that the RCMP Commissioner had promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that they would release this information. Why? Because according to the notes, Lucky said it was tied to the pending gun control legislation. Because a week later, the Liberals released their gun control legislation. Now, Brenda Lucky last night released a statement saying, no, she, she, her word, you know, she was, to use the wrong words, but she, she never did that. And, 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 and the then public safety minister, Bill Blair denies that ever happened. And he said, there's a, there's a wall of independence between the RCMP and the government. But why would then would, would, would a police officer, Superintendent Campbell have such specific notes? Let me tell you, if the, the the police the RCMP had already screwed up that entire mass shooting response their communication was terrible we know that but now it looks like this looks like it appears to be it allegedly is political interference both denied by the RCMP commissioner and the public's former public safety minister this is big this is huge this is massive in a mass murder investigation, there's allegations that the head of the RCMP had made a political promise to the prime minister's office and a minister. That is a bonkers violation. That is That destroys any sense of competence. Now there's got to be an investigation into that. And don't get me started on what's going on in the passport office, which we're going to talk to people who have waited four days to simply get a passport. So let's look at competence. Competence on inflation, no no good response. Competence on policing and security, allegations of political interference. Just the simple act to get a passport to travel after two years of the pandemic, totally incompetent. When you have a crisis of competence, you are in big time trouble. And this government has a big time crisis of confidence. You know it at the grocery store, you know it at the pump. The people in Nova Scotia know it when they hear the Mass Casualty Commission and now you know it at the passport. So we're going to dig into all this, and we're going to begin with competence at airports. Wait till you hear the story next about someone's experience.
0: Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the show today. On a Wednesday, we're talking about competence. I expect competence. You expect competence. That's how the society is supposed to work. Not just from our elected leaders, but let's say you buy a plane ticket. It's a contract. Hi, Air Canada, I'm buying my plane ticket. They say, yes, where would you like to go? My wife, for example, this morning, she works, uh, she's going on an expedition. She works at Students on Ice, and she's flew to Halifax this morning. She got got to the airport very early in the morning. She got on her flight. Thank God she just landed. Great. You have that expectation. I buy a ticket, you get on the plane, the plane delivers you safely, and you get off, and that's in return you give the money. Sounds simple, right? But you can't get a passport right now because the lineups are bonkers. If you need a passport, you have to wait two, three, four days in a line. And for many people going to an airport, it's hell. And everyone's blaming the transport minister because he can't fix it. And the transport minister is blaming airlines and listen to what Omar Al Gabra said. You know, look, there's endless lines, there's flight delays. He basically says, "Look, he's going to meet the airlines. He, like the government and the airlines are both at fault here." But here's what he says:
2: I'm going to be asking them to continue this work. Airlines have a duty as well. We're hearing some stories about luggage issues and and flight canceling. So cancellations. We want to make sure that the airlines as well do their part. I know they're working very hard, but we want to make sure they do their part. Airports also have to do their part.
1: You know, the problem with politics is you make everything abstract. We are hearing stories about luggage. No, we're not. We're hearing stories about people like Andrew Koch. He and his partner were literally removed from their Toronto to Montreal flight on Friday with 10 other people because they were told, oh, you're on the flight. You have a seat. Actually that's not your seat. We've double booked you. And Andrew's on. Let's make it personal. Let's meet Andrew. How are you doing Andrew? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I I your story's so bonkers. Like it's so great. Can you tell our listeners across the country what happened to you and your partner?
3: Yeah, so quite um quite the interesting travel day on Friday. I mean, I've flown quite a bit over over the past few years. Um so we I don't know Just normal, normal travel, you know, get through security, nothing really, no red flags, nothing like that. We go on, uh, check check into our flights, um, board our flight with our zone. So we are luckily we had an early, early boarding zone. So we get on the plane, we're sitting there, I don't know, probably 20, 30 minutes as boarding's going on. And then kind of start seeing a bit of a commotion start happening in the aisle a little bit. There was a, first I saw a family of four they got on the plane, they had their bag kind of stood there for a few minutes and then they were directed back off of the plane. Um, little did I know I'd re-meet with them a little bit later. Um, and then, yeah, an Air Canada employee, actually, he wasn't working the flight, but he was in the attire for Air Canada and came up to us and said, Hey, I think, I think you're in our seat. I think you're in my seat. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think so. So, no. He calls the flight attendant over, and she she's like, hey, can you guys furnish your boarding pass? So we give them boarding passes. Yep, we got the right seats. We're sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. About 20 minutes later, they're like, um, can you two come up to the front of the plane? So during this wait, uh, my partner and I were chatting, and we're both like, we're, we, we're not getting off this plane. like We're already seated. We're already boarded. And so we get to the front of the plane, I'm starting to get a little hot under the collar, and I Google... Google the air passenger rights regulations and find out about denied boarding and the compensation rates for that. So that calmed me a little bit, figuring this was probably the next step in our journey. And uh, yeah, after about ten minutes there, they say, "Go grab your bags. You got to go talk to the gate agent. You actually don't have a seat on this plane." Well, uh, what?
1: Like you? They, they? Sorry, I just want pe- people to be clear, Andrew. You and your partner get on the plane. You have a ticket. They check your, you know, your 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 identification, your status uh the you get on they seat you you board the plane now you've been through every check you've got on the plane you're sitting on the plane on the tarmac and all of a sudden they say actually you don't have a seat
3: correct yeah we i still have the boarding pass with me obviously and um yeah we we sat in the seats probably a good 45 minutes before we were informed that uh, our uh, our rental agreement for those seats was no longer valid
1: and what what was their explanation?
3: Uh, just that, well, just that they had double booked, that they were overbooked, that somebody else somebody else actually had the seat. And like, fortunately, when I went to talk to the gate agent afterwards, and um, I took a took a voice memo on my phone because I figured it might become prudent in the future, depending on how Air Canada reacts to all this. Uh, but she admitted that we were denied boarding due to overbooking and that we were owed compensation and um, yeah unfortunately for myself, I only read like the cold notes version of the the air passenger rights on the plane and it didn't um, didn't include like that for denied boarding you are supposed to be paid compensation at the moment of denied boarding if not due to, too tight of a flight connection. Like if they rebook you on a flight, they said our flight was in like 20 minutes. So she kind of like said, "Hey, I've added a note to your file, but you you got to go to this gate. Like your flight's going to leave soon." Um, then they have up to 48 hours to pay it out. Right. However,
1: but but basically, sure. you didn't get on there. Like that, you you missed the flight. They pulled you off. And and how many other people were pulled off? I'd say there
3: was probably roughly 10 of us in total. Like it was, uh, we were pretty far back in the plane, so I saw a few people. It's tough to gauge a number, right? Like, we were kind of we we're for the first 20 minutes or so, we were just hanging out, waiting for a flight. But like
1: but I don't understand this. Air Canada is double booking, and so 10 people are pulled off. Did you get on another flight?
3: Yeah, we were on another flight. We were delayed probably another two or three hours <sighs> um, for that flight, and then we, we did eventually get to Montreal, and luckily we had no checked bag, so there was no more
1: Kind of headaches there, but yeah. Well, what does it tell you? Like here, like this is the airline that you were living in. Did you just in, for the record? Did you get? Have you got compensated yet?
3: I haven't even got a response yet.
1: They haven't even said, "Oh, hey, we're really sorry, Andrew, to delay you three hours, pull you off." Here's uh here's here's you know three hundred bucks or two or whatever they're supposed to give you.
3: Yeah, it's it's a significant amount more than that. And one of the stipulations is also that for denied boarding, they have to. Ask for volunteers first, which we don't know if they did because we were already on the plane. And after that they can deny people boarding, but you can't deny somebody boarding who's already boarded.
1: No, you can't pull right? pull someone. There's no nothing. You can't do that.
3: That is that like that's in their regulations for denied boarding. They can say, Hey, like, if you aren't seated now and the plane's full, like tough luck, here's some money. Sorry for your inconvenience. Um, but they can't pull you out of a seat and say that you actually are not flying on this plane today.
1: So what is your message to Air Canada? They haven't contacted you. They booted you. They delayed you. They basically broke the passenger bill of rights. There's been no compensation, no accountability, nothing. What's your message to Air Canada and the government on this? I mean, like, I'm I'm
3: largely just disappointed. I'm a little, like, fearful. Like, for, um, Through work, I traveled a lot. Like, I flew a lot in in the past. So I was fortunate to acquire like a higher status through Aeroplan. Um, So through that, I have phone numbers. I have people I can call. Like when I, when we were coming back, um, I stopped in, stopped in the lounge and I talked to customer service there. You walk by the cut, like it took me three seconds to speak to somebody at customer service um, in the lounge. And you go to the customer service desk in Pearson and there's, there was probably 200 people waiting in line there. Right? right. So like I was fortunate to have, have these advantages to me and it, it hasn't gotten me anywhere still. I can only imagine how they're, how they treat like, huh. just your average traveler who does one or two holidays a year. Like I spoke that family of four that I saw get off the plane while we were waiting for the next flight. I, I walked over them. I'm like, Hey, I had on my phone, the yeah. the passenger rights. And I said, Hey, here's your,
1: I had no idea.
3: You were kicked off of a flight, but like, blah, blah, blah. I can send this to you. You can look this up. And they were like, ah, you know, we don't want the house. And and Andrew,
1: I I, got to hit it. But Andrew, your story. So first of all, I thanks for sharing it because I think people need to know about your rights. Andrew Koch, thank you. I got to take a break, sadly. But when we come back, more on incompetence.
0: where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio
1: Talk Network. I told you today is going to be about confidence. When you're investigating a mass shooting, and I I want to just quickly remind you, let's not skip over what was going on. It's a mass shooting, the worst in Canadian history, a massacre, April 2020. There's a gunman posing as a police officer. And for two days, he's gunning down 22 people, pregnant woman, teacher, 17-year-old teenager, a police constable. This is a terrible moment. And, and, And within days after, the police were scrambling to release information about what happened. And as we now know, because yesterday, and again, credit to the Halifax examiner that first broke the story, but the Mass Casualty Commission, who's looking into this, had an absolute bombshell that the superintendent in charge of the investigation, Superintendent Campbell, had handwritten notes that during a conversation with the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, indicated that she was pressuring him to release information on what kind of firearms the killer was using, the perp. But he said, I'm not going to release the perpetrator's firearms out of concern that would jeopardize the ongoing investigation. He said, if I do that, I'm going to jeopardize the investigation. But then they, according to his handwritten notes, police are trained to take notes. and I'm going to read from the Mass Casualty Commission. They said, quote, according to Superintendent Campbell's notes, Commissioner Lucky stated, quote, she had promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. What? And of course, she goes on to say that they have pending gun control legislation, which was true. Now, the liberals are on the hot seat. Uh, bill blair was asked about this yesterday he was the public safety minister here's what he said yesterday
4: i think the commissioner has issued a statement last night and she makes very clear that there was no interference she had a conversation with her subordinates and and that's her job as the commissioner but there was no pressure brought to bear and and no interference with the operational decisions of the rcmp
1: Well, well he may say that but that totally contradicts superintendent campbell's notes why then would superintendent campbell write those notes Conservative House Leader John Brassard has been on this in question, Bill Blair, and he joins us now. Hello, sir.
4: Hey, Evan. How are you doing?
1: Baffled. <laughs> this is look. This is look. If this is true, this is a political interference at the highest level. Now, we, the, now Brenda Lucky, the commission, has denied this, and now you've got Bill Blair denying it, Mr. Brassard, What's your take?
4: Evan, you and I—the uh, news broke 18 hours ago. You and I were uh, were on Power Play together, and, and I was expressing shock. Now I'm I'm just plain angry over this. Um, the more information that comes out, uh, the more it's clear that look, the the, the chief superintendent uh, Campbell in Nova Scotia. You said it. You said it at the beginning that police officers are trained to take notes that's what they do many of those notes are are presented as uh, legal evidence in court proceedings and in the case of the uh, the inquiry these are the notes that were submitted by by uh, superintendent campbell who was the lead investigator on the ground his notes state very clearly that commissioner lucky had made a promise uh to uh the Prime Minister's office and the public safety minister's office, Bill Blair was the public safety minister at the time, that they would release information. He made it very clear, and there were other RCMP officers that were in the room and, and you know Scanlon is, is another one, that they weren't going to release any of this information because it was going to jeopardize the investigation. Just twelve days after the shooting, the government introduced an order in council restricting fifteen thousand different firearms. Their intent was to use this mass tragedy to further their political agenda and ideology. There's no other conclusion that can be drawn here. But let me me
1: just let me just on that, Mr. Broussard. I don't look. Governments are entitled to respond to events, whether or not they have gun control legislation in uh, in response to a mass shooting. Look, we can. I don't want to fight about gun control legislation because. Uh, because that's not the, the topic today. Is I think in some ways different and insignificant. They may have done that, but if they decided to use this tragedy and pressure the commission of the RCMP to then press her own team to release information that would help their political agenda, this is political interference at the highest level. This is a major allegation, and 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 I'm with you in the sense that I'm I. I can't believe that a police officer of the caliber of of Superintendent Campbell would take specific notes. And then, you know, Bill Blair said there was no interference. And I want you to read, I want you to respond, Mr. Broussard, on the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Luckies. Last night, she releases this statement. I want to acknowledge and address information included in the uh, Mass Casualty Commission. I would never take actions or decisions that could jeopardize an investigation. She says... I did not interfere in the ongoing investigation in the largest mass shooting in Canadian history, she says. It's important to note that we're sharing information and briefings with the Minister of Public Sa- Safety are necessary during a mass shooting. It's standard procedure and does not impact the integrity. She says she takes the principle of police independence extremely seriously. And then and then she says this... Um, She says, it was a tense discussion, and I regret the way I approached the meeting and the impact it had on those in attendance. My need for information should have been better weighed against the seriousness of the circumstances. I don't know what she expects out of that. Like, we'll say, well, I guess you, like, the superintendent's notes are evidence that she allegedly was trying to politically interfere at the behest of the prime minister's office. How how do you regard her analysis? By the way, I've asked her to come on the show. She's declined.
4: No surprise to me. Um, Evan, I'll be frank. I mean, somebody's lying, and I suspect that it's not Superintendent Campbell. You know, we're arguing the same point here, Evan. I think, and and, and you just got to go back to the superintendent's notes where he said in the days after. the the traumatizing mass murders, uh, he alleges that the Liberal government pressured the commissioner of the RCMP to release specific details about the firearms used in the killings to advance their political agenda for pending gun control. The superintendent said he wouldn't compromise an active investigation both north and south of the border because there was an American component to this. He alleged in his notes that he was informed by the RCMP commissioner that a promise had been made to the former Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. That's a quote. I want, want Mr. Broussard, I
1: want our listeners to just know that. This is not Mr. Broussard making this up. Mr. Broussard is reading the handwritten notes from Superintendent Campbell that are as evidence in the Mass Casualty Commission. Go ahead, sir.
4: He would not, as a trained police officer... Make those type of allegations and put those in his notes. If he didn't believe it to be true, or if it wasn't said to him, somebody said that to him. He's alleging that Commissioner Lucky said that. Now, Evan, and another important part of this is that there were other people in the room who heard yeah. this. There are other people that can corroborate his story. The room was brought to tears because of what Commissioner Lucky was 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 talking about and the pressure that he was exert she was exerting on this group of. Inv- investigators who were dealing with a mass tragedy that that resulted in the loss of 22 lives including one of their own yeah. they didn't want to jeopardize this investigation because commissioner lucky it appears, was being instructed by the Prime Minister's office and the Minister of Public Safety's office to get them the information they needed in order to address or condone the order in council that they knew was coming on May 1st. This is pure political interference. And, Evan, I'll remind you, and I said it on your show last night, do you remember when the SNC-Lavalin story broke? i got got about 40 seconds here. The story in the globe was false, Evan. Well, the story in the false... uh, was true Uh, his story in the globe was true there's no reason to believe that commissioner campbell or superintendent campbell was lying in this situation we need to get to the bottom of it and conservatives are going to make sure for the sake of those families and for the sake of the rcmp uh, integrity of this Mm -hmm. investigation that we get answers of Uh, just who directed commissioner lucky to do this
1: you you, what what by the way there's lots of witnesses on that phone call on april 28 2020 uh should there be a formal investigation into this now
4: 100 percent. And in fact, today we're calling on the Speaker, not the government, to uh, initiate an emergency debate in in Parliament about this. And I'm sure that the committee will have a lot to say on this issue as well. And I expect that you're going to see an investigation by a House of Commons committee on this. We need to get to the bottom of it. We need to get to the truth for the sake of those families and for the sake of of the integrity of our institutions, Mm -hmm. which have been diminishing in this country under Justin Trudeau for several years.
1: Mr. Broussard. You're not wrong. This is explosive evidence in the Mass Casualty Commission, and we need to get transparency. Thank you, sir.
0: Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: It's been a long way to travel. And now that we can travel again, a lot of people said, okay, let's go. Oh, i got to get my passport renewed. Seems like a simple function. How hard can it be? Canadian citizens getting a passport. It's been a nightmare. The passport office is a joke. I told you the theme of today was going to be competence. But Karina Gould, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, who's faced questions about passports, and she keeps saying, you know, we're doing our best, we're doing This is a joke. This is so bad that in a G7 country, people are sitting for days, and this is the best they could come up with.
3: There is a huge volume of demand right now following the pandemic. Um, it's something that you know we have been planning for and making uh, changes to the passport program on since uh, you know well into last fall. Uh, but that being said, we received a very large volume February, March, April. Continue to receive high volumes.
1: Yeah, I, that would be, must be impossible to to anticipate that when you cork people up for two years, when you finally say now you can leave, everyone wants to leave. How hard is it to get passports? Apparently too hard and Marie Tremblay has been get this. This is Canada. June 2022 and a mom named Maria Tremblay has been camping outside a passport office in Montreal for 2 days. She ordered her 6-month-old's passport on April 19th. She was supposed to get it by May 17th. They are leaving for a uh, a wedding on Tuesday. And she's just had horrible news after these long sleepless nights. Uh, Marie joins me now. You must be, first of all, you must be exhausted. Where are you right now, Marie? I'm
5: waiting in the Saint Laurent here for the passport and it's in a thunderstorm. And I'm here with a bunch of people who's in here camping. I brought my tent and I have a six month old with me. I can't do anything. They told me they're booked for today and tomorrow. They're closed Friday, they're closed all weekend. So I have a wedding to get to and I won't be able to make
1: it and Wait, you you I just want to get this straight. You are in a tent outside a passport office in downtown yes. Montreal and you spent the night? Lawrence, yes. You spent the night with a 6-month-old in a tent outside a passport office?
5: Yes, and they don't care.
1: How how many people around you are there, Marie? Uh,
5: at least 200, at least. At least 200 in front of me, at least 200 behind me. And, and, and
1: have you ever, in your wildest nightmares, thought, in order to get is, a basic service, I'm going to have to go camping, urban camping in the streets of Montreal?
5: No, I thought we were in Canada. My boyfriend's from the Congo, and he, he could just pay somebody. I would have the passport right now. <laughs>
2: you know, so like, ridiculous.
5: this is not a third-world country.
1: Like, come on. What was it like to be in a tent? In a thunderstorm with your son.
5: It's so scary. I was so scared. We went in the car, but like the car was shaking. It was, we couldn't see outside.
1: And, 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 and now you don't think you're going to be able to get your son's passport for the wedding on Tuesday? No,
5: they told us uh, they're booked for two days. Uh, There's no point of waiting to go. And they might even arrest us if we want to stay here
1: wait who told you you might be arrested
5: uh, this bodyguard here
1: there's a guard there that said if you don't leave the passport office you're going to be exactly. arrested you
5: can't, hear, you can't hear him right now he's yelling at us
1: let me hear him put put the phone up i want to hear him but i'm gonna get arrested i don't Oh, don't get, get arrested, arrested. oh yeah no, don't put yourself in danger in no, no you work in a school so you're actually yes. scared that you're going to get arrested just because all you – and all you want to do is get a bloody passport for your I kid. I just
5: want my passport for my kid, which I was waiting for his birth certificate to be able to get his passport. The, and that know, took forever. Oh, Since April we're waiting, and they told us, May the latest, but still, there's uh, all kinds of news here, and they're not doing anything about
1: it. The, and and, and, and you, do, you, do you feel now that they're bullying you and the others?
5: Yes, I feel horrible. Like what am I, what am I supposed to do? They're trying to make a war. Everyone is fighting because the passports are here and they're not giving it to us. This lady in front of me, she's getting married in Jamaica and she can't go to her own wedding. And have
1: they have have, have they been have they been honestly? Are they treating you with? Are they being bullying? Are they being polite? They're or
5: not, are, no, they're not being polite. They're you can't, this guy is say, stay at your place or else we're calling the police. There's so no could here. They can't, you can't even go pee for two days. You can't even go pee. They blocked us from going to the bathroom.
1: Oh my God. So how, what are you doing? How are you getting food? How are you going to the wash? They said
5: if we, if we
1: don't, I went to pee behind the dumpster. Oh, my God. This is this is Canada, Marie.
5: What is going on here? And there's people all around seeing me pee behind a dumpster. I don't care. Like, I need this password. And Friday, they're closed because of St. Jean.
1: Oh, my God. What, when you hear the minister, Karina Gould, say... We've hired 600 additional folks since January. That's not We're hiring true. another 600. Uh, what do you mean? What do you What do you make of that? I
5: don't it? think it's true. There's one printer and there's like one person working since the beginning, and they're saying they're giving out numbers, but I never saw them come out. I've been walking back and forth, back and forth, and I got my mom here to come get the baby because you can't stay another night like this.
1: Are you prepared to stay another night?
5: I'm staying until Monday, Tuesday, if I have to.
1: What? You're going to stay four or five days in a tent in downtown Montreal, peeing behind a dumpster to get a bloody passport?
5: Yes. I need a, my passport. I oh, need my, my God. Passport. My passport is fine. He's not a criminal. He's a baby.
1: This is so stupid. Can you imagine you can order something on Amazon, it comes overnight, you can't get a passport from the federal government? I know. What does this tell you? What's your message? Uh,
5: I don't know what to say. I just I don't want to live in Canada anymore. This is worse than any country I've ever been to.
1: Is that right?
5: Like, like I don't know. it's just as hard to get a passport as Cuba. like they can't leave.
1: This I mean you feel like you anymore. feel like a prisoner in your own country?
5: I'm a prisoner I, I'm not gonna leave my son behind. His uncle is getting married. He paid for a ticket for us to afford. On that leave, a teacher cannot afford. They pay me half of my salary because of COVID. So half of the half. So I get paid a quarter. So do you, you think I can afford this? No, they paid for us to go and now we can't even go.
1: It's so stupid. They could just say, hey, travel on your mom's passport. they just, you know, like, they have so many ways out of this. Next Next week?
5: He's not going to look the same. Since I took the picture, and they told me my son has to be here because they don't believe me, it's for my son.
1: Oh, God. Marie, can you do me a favor? It's, like, let's stay in t- I want to know, I want your story. Do you mind if we stay in touch, and so we can find out if you get this thing? I am I'm yes. no so problem. sorry. Please stay safe out there. Like, this is this is so outrageous. Well, are it's to
5: so, fight. They're going to, I don't know, it's going to start a war. Justin Trudeau, thanks. He wants a war. He doesn't want Canadians to be able to leave the country. Plain and simple.
1: Marie Tremblay, camped outside a passport office in Montreal since yesterday, prepared to do it till Tuesday for a six-month-old. Marie, let's stay in touch. Please stay safe, okay? Seriously, stay safe. Don't get involved in anything dangerous. All right. This This is a young mom, a young teacher, a young mom. This is like, I'm sorry, I told you the show today was about competence. Airlines, passport offices, inflation, investigating mass murder. We got a serious problem on our hands. We're going to take a break. The war room's next. Wait till you hear this.
0: Listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show.
1: Inflation at a um, forty-year high, seven point seven percent. We just talked to a woman who has waited two days at a passport office. Won't get the passport. Is going to wait, camped out, peeing behind a dumpster, crying. Says she's being bullied, and won't get a passport for her six-month-old son in Montreal. Passport disaster. And then allegations of political interference from the Mass Casualty Commission, which are just absolutely explosive handwritten notes by Superintendent Campbell, alleging that the commissioner of the RCMP says she was doing the behest of the prime minister's office and the minister of public safety by making him jeopardize, in his words, the investigation and release information about the weapon. Massive story. The RCMP denies they did it. The minister denies he did it, but the the notes remain what they are. All this subject to our war room.
4: Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out
6: misinformation. And we hear that Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally.
1: The war room. I'm in a grumpy mood when I see this level of political incompetence all over the place. But the only thing that cheers me up is Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader. Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. I'm downing and quaffing some of the beer he owns because I need to calm down. And Scott <laughs> Reed is... St- wow! Scott Reed... It's like when you get a designated hitter and you're like, who do we have? And it's like, oh, my God, Babe Ruth is in the house. CTV News political commentator, former <laughs> comms director for uh, Prime Minister Paul Martin, and insisted in his rider closet, I call him Scott the Babe Reed. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I that see. sounds like
6: me. <laughs>
1: oh, well, I'm a
6: poor substitute for Zane. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> okay, the Babe, whatever. Um, can we? I, I'll, let me deal with inflation in a minute. And, and let's deal with the passport office fiasco in a second, if we can. I, I think the most explosive news, and let's bring our guest in at the top. Um, the Mass Casualty Commission investigating the, tw- the deaths, mass murder of 22 people over two days says that handwritten notes by Superintendent Campbell, they're supposed to write notes, police. Notes are used in evidence. Says that Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, said she would promised the Minister of Public Safety, I'm reading here, and the prime minister's office that the RCMP would release the information about the perpetrator's firearms. And he had said to her, that's going to jeopardize the investigation. And she said, no, you don't understand. It's tied to the pending gun control legislation from the liberals. Now, she denies it and the minister denies it. But nonetheless, this is a big story. Scott, what do you make of this?
6: Well, it is a big story because it's a big allocation. But I don't actually know how you... bring this thing to heel because you've got the RCMP commissioner saying that she didn't do it. You've got the minister denying it. I know myself from having been in a prime minister's office. um, I mean, unless the culture's completely changed, you do not talk. to the RCMP commissioner about uh, outstanding investigations about operational issues. Um, so I, so it doesn't, it doesn't square obviously. Um, but you know, you're going to have an inquiry. Uh, these are notes and people will be able to ask more questions. So, you know, I guess we'll see some more digging, but on the face of it, like it, it both, I know people's cynicism about politics is enormous, but based on my personal experience, it doesn't actually make sense.
1: Yeah, here's what does make sense. There's handwritten notes, Tom, from a superintendent. And here's here's the other thing that makes sense. Um, In the room on that call was not only the Commissioner Lucky, and um, there's the Deputy Commissioner, Brian Brennan, the representative of NHQ Strategic Communications. There is uh, members of the RCMP Nova Scotia, including Assistant Commander Bergman, Chief Superintendent Leather, Superintendent Campbell, Director Scanlon-like hey, you want to investigate this? There's a whole hell of a lot of people that witness this.
7: Yeah, Yeah. and I was going straight to the words that were used by another senior cop, a fellow named Bill Blair. And when he was giving the government's answer, because the prime minister's office yesterday was nice enough to say, no, Bill Blair's answering for the government. uh, Blair never outright denied that there had been communication on this. He said there was no attempt to push the politics of this through the RCMP. He was... Look, it was a word salad, and he was being very careful because he's got enough experience to know, as Scott just hinted, there's going to be an inquiry into this. Because if this actually took place, this is direct political use of the police because the police are saying, we've got an investigation going on in the United States. We want to know who was able to purchase these weapons, how they made it across the Canadian border. And no, we're not going to give out any of that operational information right now. We're going to hold on. And they were getting pressure back from Lecky, according to the notes and according to other people in the room. And that's where I would start getting nervous, by the way, if I was in the PMO saying, okay, we've got to be very careful where we tread here because there are more than enough people who were there. They'll be able to testify to this and we better be careful because this is, as the opposition was saying yesterday, this is an echo of the snc lavalain debacle where they denied, they delayed, and then they got hit in, in the snout by the ethics commissioner, again, for sticking right. their nose in, in, in uh, the prosecution process in the prosecution service so they've got to be super careful last takeaway evan if i may my my biggest takeaway here is the senior civil service whether it's the police or otherwise are starting to leak look at what happened with global affairs watch out that's very bad news for a government
1: uh tim a mass casualty commission puts this out uh, these are handwritten notes of su- Superintendent Campbell. Ironically, Bill Blair, who had just finished testifying about the Emergencies Act, and he said, I don't take notes. It's like, how convenient. Now yeah. we do have notes. Now, I guess, let's let's say it. Someone's lying here because Commissioner Brenda Luckey comes out and says, I didn't pressure, I didn't jeopardize, and Superintendent Le- uh, Campbell legitimately says she did. One of them's not telling the truth, and there's got to be an investigation. What do you make of this?
8: And what does Campbell have to gain from all of this? Uh, I mean, he's under enormous pressure at the time. He's trying to do his job, and uh, we all remember the horrors of that two-day period and the criticism the RCMP were under. I've worked with the RCMP for years. Tom's son is a police officer. They all take pride in what they do when they do things like this, when they're investigating matters like this. So there doesn't seem to be a plausible motive for him to not have transcribed what he believed he heard uh, on that particular day. What is fascinating to me, and Scott will remember this well, is don't they teach a commissioner school to run 100 miles away from any political issue? Uh, Commissioner Zaccardelli, anybody? The 2004, 2005, or 2005, 2006 election? Very different circumstances, but nonetheless, Zaccardelli got hauled into, became a central issue, as Scott well knows, in that election campaign because his RCMP at the time announced or responded to an NDP inquiry about uh, the income trust file. I mean, Brenda Lucky has been around the RCMP for a long time. If she had an iota, that this was going to be political she should have stood miles and miles away and let her officers do the work
1: just just last thing on this yeah. Scott because I, I don't know how they get it. here I just want to play this clip of Bill Blair who was the minister at the time and and, and obviously a former police chief here's what he said about this this the the, the line between the government and the police.
4: This is, this, this is actually an important line between government and, and the operations of, of the police commissioner and the RCMP. It's a line that has always been respected. Both the commissioner and I respected that, that, that important delineation of responsibility.
1: Okay, so Bill Blair says that, and Superintendent Campbell writes in his police notes, handwritten, she'd promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. Like Scott... You can't spin away from this. This is the cop's notes part of the Mass Casualty Commission. What has to happen? Doesn't there have to be an independent inquiry?
6: I, certainly. I don't know if it's a full-fledged inquiry, but there has to be questions put to all the other people that you guys just listed They were in the room, and, and no question. I mean, because you want to know exactly what went down, what was said. But, that, you know, I, I know we're all talking breathlessly, but it's also not impossible that this is all a matter of characterization. You know, the, the notes characterize it as, oh, well, she said she was, you know, made this promise, was instructed. It's not inappropriate for the commissioner to be speaking to the minister of public safety and to say, listen, when it comes to when it comes to the gun control legislation, we have a point of view on it. So it's just, it, it, you know, it, how, how do, you know, the, the six other people that were witness to the conversation, how do they report it out? What's the Rashomon of this whole thing? Um, you know, it could be a big deal. It could just be a game of broken telephone.
1: Well, uh, it's, it, if it's broken telephone, Brenda Lucky's, yeah, I got to get a new line. I think she's on the hot seat. I think the minister's on the hot seat. And uh, I got to take a break. That's the first thing. I got to play the three of you in the war room, the passport crisis. We just spoke to a woman who is still camping out in Montreal for days. It's a disaster. And then we'll get to inflation. What a good day to be in government. Aren't your three glasses? You're out now. Oh, the war room. Canadians got to figure out, and Tom, you said it. Is this the purple phase of this government? We'll find out. That's next. Here comes the war room.
0: Strong views. Powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. We are inside the war room with Scott Reed, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. A uh, good dinner party if you ever want one. Um, let's start with um, Tim Powers on this one. Inflation's just at a 40-year high, guys. That's it. It hasn't been this high since 1983, which was the last time Tom had a ponytail. Now he's he's got it back, which is probably true. Um Christian Freeland has has rolled out a new affordability plan that was like giving your kids a present in in, in November and saying, don't open it up because it will be new in December under the Christmas tree. Uh, Are the liberals doing enough to combat inflation? Why do they keep rejecting sort of basic things like, I don't know, freezing the gas tax?
8: Uh, don't don't leave out you, Scott, and myself. I mean, look, we were in grade 10 then uh, watching Pretty in Pink, and all had a crush on Molly Ringwald. I mean, come oh, on! Oh, nice. That that, that is that, a great. Absolutely. That is a
1: fair point. That is a very fair point. You still so, haven't uh, been uh, the uh, ducky look.
8: You probably did have a ducky look, no doubt. Um, The problem liberals have here, I think, other than actually managing the whole frigging thing, and they can't manage it all, to be fair. I mean, look, uh, very clear in some of the data that's come out today, particularly particularly as it relates to oil and gas. There's a huge international element to it, but you, you feel as you watch the liberal response that Air Canada does better when you're stuck on a tarmac and they say, Uh, We're sorry about the delay. Thank you for your patience. There's almost sincerity in that. The liberals aren't connecting here at all. Scott's written a lot about how Polyev is connecting with people's anger. The liberals are so disconnected on communicating empathy and a sense that they give a damn right now. It's killing them, killing them because they're on fire on so many different
1: fronts. Oh, my God. Scott, I, I could play a clip of the woman. Maybe we have it, Chris. Uh, we just literally spoke to a woman who's camping out for days outside of a passport office she, with her six-month-old. She can't to get a passport. She's going to be there for days. She says they're being bullied. Listen to this. I brought my
5: tent, and I have a six-month-old with me. I can't do anything. They told me they're booked for today and tomorrow. They're closed Friday. They're closed all weekend. So I have a wedding to get to, and I won't be able to make it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Scott. She's like, this is a, this is a, this is a nightmare. How about this? Just, just one more because I get this blew me away. Listen,
5: they can't. You can't even go pee for two days. You can't even go pee. They blocked us from going to the bathroom. So I went to pee behind the dumpster.
1: Like Scott, this is Canada, Mont- downtown Montreal. What, what does this tell you?
6: Well, it tells you that this government has got challenges on its hands, and it's doing a poor job of managing them. Like I, I. I you know, on this, you know, it, this passport issue, um, airports, and yes, people can say and point out, well, these are global issues. We see these happening all over the place. There's all sorts of, you know, challenges of labor force. There's all sorts of challenges in terms of, uh, you know, systems and structure. Fine, right? Those are facts. People want answers. And they look to their government for answers. And they look to their government, to Tim's point, for a sense of priority, a sense of urgency, a sense of focus. I know there are global issues. I know there can be issues that are beyond the ken of any single government to, to... to manage, but don't. As Christian Freeland told me last week on this uh, on this issue of cost of living, do not tell me when the barn is on fire that don't worry. You filled the milk last. You filled the uh, the fridge last year with milk. Like that's not. I don't know what you're talking about. You got that's not. We're not putting this thing out with last year's milk. Okay. So they um, they really 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 run the risk of um, appearing to be disconnected from what real people are going through. Appearing to be unable to fulfill the basic core functions that. People People expect from their government. And when that happens, people go looking for answers elsewhere. And sometimes those answers are misleading. Sometimes those answers are simplistic. Sometimes those answers are bogus. But people will be drawn to them if you give them reason to doubt you and your basic competence. And right now, the government is driving people into the arms of Pierre Polyev by not demonstrating priority on these core issues.
1: Basic competence. And you're right. And Tom, you've written about this. Is this government deep into the dog ate my homework phase? Because they don't seem to have answers.
7: Yeah, and I love what Scott just said because the the first line of talking points out of the PMO is going to be something like, "Oh, have you looked at the situation in the United Kingdom? They're not doing any better than we are." Eh, wrong answer to the lady who has to go and pee behind the dumpster. M- most families right now, the solution that they found, and I'm putting solution in air quotes, they've been driving from Montreal to Shakudami. So that think think Toronto. Sudbury and add another hour of driving. So that's how far that is because the office up there is, is, is okay and it's working. So Montreal, of course, big centre, you know, lots of people who travel and that is the key point here. What's the priority and what's your ability to manage? What's management? It's not just reacting to something, it's thinking about what's coming your way. We're coming out of a pandemic. We know that people have not been travelling. It's obvious that they're going to need passports and they're going to be heading to airports in large numbers. When Pearson broke down and the Minister of Transport blamed passengers saying, oh, they're you know, they're rusty. they rusty. They've forgotten how to take out their laptops. L- laptops." I'm sort of going, okay, I can't believe that that guy just said that. And then he said the next week, but we're going to hire 600 new screeners. So maybe there was a government problem as well, Mr. Minister. And that's what people are getting here. And that's why people are so riled up right now. They're sort of going, is this a breakdown in the ability to do the basic, most competent, simple public administration. Mr. Trudeau was down in California, important meetings with Biden and Governor Newsom and all that. Then he got ill and we hope he's recovered completely because now we find out that he's going on a three-continent trip to a bunch of international events. That's the part that he likes. That's fine. But if he doesn't like the day-to-day mundane management, he's got to have people who do. Yeah. And that's the problem. You watch the RCMP thing. That That's not over. What we just saw with the RCMP, that's not over. And global affairs and going to the Russian embassy, despite the fact that Canada officially accused Russia of genocide, that's not over either. There's something breaking between this government and the senior bureaucracy, yeah. and it's playing out live on our TV screens.
1: And what's the secret to politics timing, Scott? Uh, look, the the prime minister's in Rwanda today. Maybe that's important. But Canadians are learning that gas is up 48% in the last year. Uh, I mean... Parliament's going to rise Are they Is this a bad moment For this government Is there Are they awash In a series of Competence problems
6: If you're asking me The answer is Indisputably yes And you know Not Like it's easy To pile on But um, And not every problem Is of similar size And significance But they've got to Fundamentally rewire Their approach To this cost of living issue They just do not Appear to be seized With it And um, you know, inflation kills governments, like absolutely yeah. stone kills governments. And, uh, you know, they can't just rely on this NDP deal and think, well, that's fine. We'll just carry on to a distant point in the future when uh, inflation will be uh, once again in memory. I, you just can't you, you can't take the. You don't have the luxury of making that assumption.
1: Yeah. Timmy, are, are we in? By the way, I've got the senior vice president and chief economist of Scotiabank coming up. and He says they got to do more on inflation. But is this a government that's, and Tom Mulcair has argued this, a whole of government approach to incompetence. Are they listless right now? They got trouble.
8: They seem completely adrift. At a minimum, they need a major cabinet shuffle, because there are some woefully underperforming ministers. They also, and this is not to be critical of the staff, the prime minister's had people around them for seven or eight years. Tom and and Scott, well, no, you can't perform at a high level like that, government through government, and continue to deal with these crises. They need to look at how they operate. Uh, If they don't, they're going to continue to be in this state of malaise, and that's not good for the country.
1: Tom, my assessment is this is a government without an internal challenge function. So every idea looks like a first draft. They have no ability to edit. They throw out first drafts and it doesn't
7: work. That's what it looks like to me, Tom. Karina Gould just stood up in the House of Commons a few minutes ago. And she was asked, point blank, you know, why are you not even giving out coupons to have rendezvous? Why is nothing organized? And her answer was, I don't know. That's the minister. I think that that sums it up in a nutshell. That's where we are with them right now. And I think that if you go down the list, it's a very long list of things that are problematic. Once they sign their deal with Singh, I have a feeling a lot of them went back into hibernation saying, hey, we're good for the next three years. And we don't have to worry about actually doing our jobs properly. I, I agree with Tim though we're, we're due during the summer. There will have to be a major, major cabinet oh. shuffle. When we find out about Singh, the minister minister wanting to get a yeah. special deal where he doesn't even have to go through security at the airports okay time yeah. to hit reset get rid of some of those uh, folks that just shouldn't uh, be there anymore i
1: was thinking scott reed performed so well maybe we should just get rid of zane <laughs> let's just think of that scott moves over from overhyped and underplayed <laughs> and then the note yeah. i'm happy a, to let him know
7: I, yeah, a, war sure, room, yeah. a war room shuffle. <laughs> war, war room shuffle, shuffle. scott tim tom zane work. we're not
1: getting rid of it. thanks high. it's great we we Bye got we got lots more thanks gents
0: Paying close attention to your money, your world. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: 40 years ago, 1983, inflation was about this high. And I was just uh, seeing the remake of Top Gun. It wasn't even out yet. It was like, I think Tom Cruise was in risky business in 1983. Scarface was out. Sean Connery was still doing another James Bond. Never say never again. The third Star Wars Return of the Jedi was out. It was like a different world. Well, we're back. Inflation's at 7.7%. And the idea that it's transitory has been basically rendered a sad joke. The question is, what's up? Well, gas is up. Everything's up. Jean-Francois Perrault, the senior vice president and chief economist at Scotiabank, had a report out this week saying the government has to do more. They can't keep relying on the central bank to crank up interest rates to cool inflation. They're partly responsible. And to talk about today's news and to try to get us understand what's driving this and what needs to be done, Mr. Perrault joins us again. How are you doing, sir?
9: Pretty good, Thanks. Thanks for me on.
1: You, we kind of knew this was coming. I, I know Christopher was with Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury uh, Secretary, and she was saying, you know, Canada's doing great. We have such great inflation. We knew within a week that we'd have these numbers. What's What do you make a 7.7% inflation and what's driving it?
9: Well, obviously, oil and, and gasoline prices have a big impact on that. But what's, you know, worrisome about... Recent inflationary developments, including this morning's report, is you know there's pretty broad-based broad kind of element to to the rise in inflation. So you can't we can't blame it all on gas. Me, on gasoline. It's uh, you know this is indicative of the challenges that are faced. It it, it requires a comprehensive response. <laughs>
1: You're, if you take a drink of water there, uh, I hope you don't have any uh, anything bad there. <laughs> yeah,
9: sorry, just give me one second.
1: Yeah, that's all right. We're speaking to Jean-Francois Perrault. He's a chief economist at Scotiabank. So you want to speak to a chief economist, right, to find out how long this inflation is going to go for. So we know this is going, sir, and I hope, you, uh, Jean-Francois, I hope you, uh, you get a drink there. Yeah, yep, my back. Yep. Yeah, uh, so, so we haven't seen this in 40 years. We know what's driving it. I guess the question is, how long is it going to go for? should we just expect this is coming or is it going to end soon or what's the bank's prediction?
9: Well, it, it better end soon because if it doesn't end soon then we're, we're in for you know pretty rocky times you know the reality is that a lot of what's driving inflation what has driven inflation is you know transitory is not quite the right term anymore but are things that have happened in the past that are not likely to contribute very much to inflation going forward right so once oil prices rise and they stay there, that eventually bleeds out of inflation. Because inflation is a year-over-year change or the rate of change of prices. So if you got a stability in prices, even if they're high and you don't like where they're at, that eventually becomes less and less inflation. Um, but you know, if you move further upstream, one of the stories on inflation in the last number of months and quarters, actually, has been this kind of supply bottleneck. So you know, everybody rushing to purchase the same kind of goods, whether they're firms or households, that created tensions and made it more difficult to purchase things to, to manage inventory. You obviously, contributed contribute to significant increases in quality prices and input prices. There's pretty compelling evidence that, um, you know, that aspect of it, these supply challenges, supply bottlenecks are driving inflation less and less, that these indicators, these upstream indicators of inflation do seem to be turning, which suggests that as we get into, say, the second half of the summer into the fall, um, that we should experience, we should observe a pretty significant slowdown in inflation. Now, the problem is a slowdown in inflation, you know, we're at 7.7. You could say we're going to 4% the second part of the year, which is a huge slowdown in inflation. But the Bank of Canada target is 2%. Yeah, but it's so
1: still, you're still a double, well double the target. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so can, of course, there's a fear of a re- recession. People are wondering, you know, the tech markets are down. There's a recession, and yet, weirdly, we were supposed to have big household savings for certain households over the pandemic because the government overshot their fiscal support. We are we have a super tight labor market. How do you explain all this?
9: So this is this is this is kind of one of the interesting components. That, you know, the development is you know, growth in Canada is actually quite strong at the moment. Labor market, sorry, The housing market is slowing, clearly, and that's a, this kind of a desirable thing, is it had been you know, extremely, extremely robust. Um, but when you look at the fundamentals, when you look at labor demand, you look at the labor rate, when you look at pent-up demand on the household side, and you look at household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets, all that suggests the commodity prices, which are positive for Canada, we export commodities, all that suggests the growth in Canada will be like something around 4% this year, a little bit less than 4%. Which is you know, it's probably gonna be the strongest of any advanced country around the world. In that context, you know, inflation is a problem and Canadians are worried, rates are going up. So there's a disconnect between what's actually happening, if you will, in the real economy versus how we think um, you know, we're experiencing that economy. And that's and of course, inflation is a big big element of uncertainty in that perspective, right? When you when you're paying record levels for for to fill up your gas tank, when you go to the grocery store and things are every, every more expensive. You don't feel it. Really doesn't feel like this is a robust economy, but so far uh, this year, it's been it's been remarkably strong.
1: I'm speaking with Jean-Francois Perrault, the uh, chief economist at Scotia Bank. You'd done a report, and you and I had spoke about it earlier uh, in the week. What should the federal government be doing more on their side to tackle inflation?
9: I think so. I mean, listen. You know, inflation is inflation is a problem. You know, whether it comes down second part of this year or not, um, you know, the reality is that we're just we're just dealing with unprecedented levels of inflation, right? Like you'll go gotta go back forty years for this. And while in principle, actually not in principle, while in, in, in fact, you know, the Bank of Canada is the organization in the country that is tasked with controlling inflation, um, the reality is, and, and the agreement between the Bank of Canada and the government is that it is a joint responsibility of both. To achieve two percent inflation. So we're simply thinking that in this context, in this context of exceptional inflation, of you know, basically we haven't, most of us haven't lived through this inflation uh, in a professional capacity. That if this isn't the circumstance in which coordination between the government and the Bank Canada to bring inflation down is is required, then you're basically never going to have to, you're basically never going have to worry about them coordinating. Right. So that's kind of the thinking behind it. Like these are exceptional circumstances. Normally, the Bank of Canada should be doing this, but you know what's the harm in trying to help, given given that we're so outside our comfort zone on
1: inflation. Yeah, maybe they just got to rein it in. Uh, okay, it's 1983. Do you remember where you were in '83? Do you have any idea, like the songs on the playlist when you in 1983? Well, I, remember,
9: I remember the movies, and you know, when you're going through the movie list, thinking, you know. 83 wasn't
1: that bad. Yeah, it was pretty good, right? Listen to this. The the top song of 83 was Every Breath You Take by The Police. And it beat out Billie Jean by Michael Jackson and then Flashdance What a Feeling by, I'll give you a dollar if you know who sang What a Feeling. Irene Cara. Cara. Oh my God, you knew that. I owe you a buck. Okay, how about this? I'll double your money. Who did, this one I think you'll know. 1983, when inflation was the same as it is now, there was a song called Down Under by an Aussie band. What was the name of the band?
9: Midnight Oil. Oh,
1: no. No, Close. no, 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 no. no. Men at work? work. Men at work, yes. <laughs> Men without work, yeah. Men, men at work. work, men without work. There was higher unemployment then. Now actually, we do have <laughs> right. men at work. <laughs>
9: flip. Yeah,
1: that's men without work was. But that was interesting, right? In '83, there was unemployment and high inflation. Now we've got low employment. We actually have men at work. Now, mm-hmm. wow, that's anyway. What a year! Um, listen. Um, I really appreciate. Did you think you'd do a music quiz as a chief economist of Scotia Bank?
9: I did. I did not think I'd do a music quiz, and nor did I think there'd be a, a kind of a, a movie historical intro. So,
1: but you got it. You, you know, you got to make people realize that was a hell of a long time ago. We had these interest rates, but actually, Absolutely. we have good memories. Maybe we'll have good I mean, memories. I mean, if, you 20... know, if,
9: if, if you go back a couple of years to that, you'd have like mortgage rates that were in the high teens.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, I don't even want to go back that long. <laughs> Jean-François Perrault, here we are doing a musical tour of the 80s, sadly, because inflation is now at 7.7%. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Eh? Stay healthy. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, man. Boy, I owe my a buck. Irene Cara, flash dance. Very impressive. Does that recalibrate how you think chief economists at Big Banks act? That's the chief economist on a spot rock quiz from Scotiabank Bank absolutely sticking the landing what a feeling flash dance i must say early 80s flash dance what a crush uh coming up this is a great story how about building rockets in a garage in toronto and now getting funding for it to go to space i swear to god canadian couple doing that they're on next
0: Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon show on the iHeart Radio Talk
1: Network. So the uh, theme of the show today was confidence, right? How come the government can't get passports right and airports right and we got inflation at 7.7% they're not doing much about that and now you've got this uh, potential allegations of interference in the investigation into the mass shooting. You think does anyone like just have confidence to build things they dream about it and they do it? Yes. Here's the dream. Let's build our own rocket company. What? Yeah, yeah. Let's build a rocket company. We'll build some rockets and then we'll launch satellites and we'll try to do it from our garage just north of Toronto. I mean, if Elon Musk can do it, so can we. And that's what a husband and wife, Saurabh hat and Sharnaz Safari the founders of Space Rides are doing uh Harnaz and Sorab join me now oh my god you've got your own space company based out of your garage how did this start sorab uh, so it started
2: by basically looking at how slow the rate of innovation in space is and how long it takes for one satellite company, for example, to go from ideation and say they have all the money to build the satellite and launch it and everything to the point that they actually get the satellite into space and they get signal from that. Best case scenario that goes in about two years. So from the point in time that you start building the satellite, you buy the launch contract and you launch it to get the first signal, it's two years. In other disciplines and industries, is far faster than that and that has to change if we truly want to benefit from space and get the value of what has been promised to us about this world of space and people living in other in other planets this has to change and that was the
1: idea we're okay. going to change it by offering on demand launch services but that sounds great but, but and I, I know you're engineers but Saharnaz let me go to you like where just tell me the moment when you and Sorab were like I think we should start a rocket company in our own garage. like where who thinks of that? and how did tell me what that conversation was like?
10: Um, I mean <laughs> the idea i'm i I am on the business and operations side, but the idea came from Sora. Um, And I was supporting him on the business side because he was so confident in this is going to work. This is what the industry needs. Um, You didn't say so, Rob. Sorry. You didn't just
1: say, okay. I'm the business person. Starting a rocket company in our garage is a pretty crazy
10: idea. So, Rob, you didn't you didn't give him the old. Are you sure, honey? Um, I did ask a lot of questions. Um, it took us months.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I bet you're being polite. It's like, are you, so, so like what was the moment where you decided, so rap, okay, let's do this. Like, just take me to that moment where you, you're going to, you decide to start building space ride.
2: So it was, I was coming up to my two and a half years at cruise automation for people who don't know cruise automation is the self-driving car company in San Francisco, that got acquired in 2016 by General Motors. And I was one of the early engineers. And at the time that basically I decided to do space ride, I was managing more than 30 engineers for half of uh, the engineering uh, development. And I thought that look at what we accomplished in two and a half years at Cruise. And that is in many parts because of the fact that in the morning we came up with an idea, implemented the idea. By the end of the day, we were testing it on public roads of San Francisco, the same environment that this thing had to be tested. And as I said, that's not how it is in space. And because we went through acquisition, growth of the company and everything, I had the experience. I also benefited from that acquisition financially. And I thought that I know how to do it. And I have an idea that it can disrupt the industry, which I'm among the only people who know how to do it. I have the resources. And it's wow. now So what's never. the
1: idea? So let's talk about the, everyone's like, okay, well, Elon Musk is doing it and Jeff Bezos is doing it. They're the richest people in the world. What's your idea and how did you get going? So one of the main
2: uh, challenges that we need to overcome when we are launching to space is traveling at fast speed through dense layers of the atmosphere. That requires a lot of structural design and implementation that requires a lot of calculation to be done. But what if you can avoid that? What if you can bypass all those dense layers and then launch above the atmosphere? Not only you are not going to deal with all those structural and propulsion elements, you can design your rockets to be optimum for vacuum condition that allows you to lower the cost of launch. And on top of that, you are not putting an ounce of chemical into any of the layers of the atmosphere you are not going to harm ozone layer just because you want to launch another satellite so this idea has all of it easier to implement cheaper and more affordable for the customer and better
1: for the planet and then what is it You basically, as i understand it you basically have a giant hot air balloon you lift up the rocket on a platform, like you, you, you float it up above the, the sort of the atmosphere and then you launch it in the thin air. Is that right?
2: So everything is right, except that it's not a hotter balloon, it's a stratospheric balloon that can be run on helium or hydrogen.
1: And, and, and so 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 and then you got to get a rocket so wh- how far along are you on on, on this I, I i i'm yeah i know i'm talking to so rap uh so i'm not talking to you not because i, I don't want to but i know this is the engineering side then we'll get to the cash side in a second but so like how far along are you on this
2: we are literally a year away, a year away from launching to space
1: and do you have a like Like, don't you have to, like, where are you going to launch from? Do you have to get, like, a license? Say, like, "Uh, we're about to launch a rocket.
10: Yes. So, um... That's where I come in. yes um, <laughs> so um, we did actually do a balloon rocket flight back in 2019 um, every every rocket flight has to have a permit from Transport Canada if it is in Canada um, or from Canada. and so we did that um, after 21 years we received the first uh, permit uh, from Transport Canada in 2019 um obviously for the, for our next flight we're gonna apply and get this the other permit for for our um this time full-scale system um and um where we're launching from we have uh a, an agreement with the canadian space agency um they have a balloon launch facility out of timmins ontario which um we can use when wow. it's not in use by csa so that's where it's gonna happen from
1: so, so, already the Canadian Space Agency has partnered with you. And do you have a customer yet?
10: We do. We have many customers. Uh, we have over 84 million USD dollars worth of uh, letters of interest. That's just for launching satellites close to the Earth. We're also talking to our um, customers for Moon because we are going to deep space. Um, and getting their interest in our services.
1: And you got thirty people. So, 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 when is the first launch scheduled?
10: The first launch is scheduled for next year. This the is first, crazy. Um, yeah. And, you did, and and I <laughs> yeah. got a, I got a minute here. And and what happens to
1: the balloon? Like, can you do you get it back?
10: Yes, we recover the balloon and the platform. The the. What we call a flying spider, um, a rocket carrier that the rocket is mounted beneath it. Uh, we recover all of that, and and the uh, the rocket carrier is actually designed to be reused, so we u- reuse it.
1: Okay, you you are the, my favorite couple, a Canadian couple, Soreb uh, Soreb Hagihat and uh, Sahar Naz Safari, the founders of Space Ride. If you guys can build rockets in a garage, we the federal government can't even get people to get a passport. I think you need to finish this rocket stuff and take over the government after and get some stuff done. But I really can't. I wish you all the success. Space Ride, we need this as a first in Canada. What great innovation. Thanks for inspiring us, you two, and and best of luck. Thank
10: Thank you very much. Thank you for having
1: us. Wow, you guys are amazing. How great is that? Oh, my God. All right, I'll see you on Power Play tonight. There. Amazing.